Welcome to the Brandy Show, Conversations With. The idea for this type of show came from the very concept of podcasts. They're available to anyone at any time since they stay posted on the internet portal indefinitely. Podcasts that are time sensitive, that deal with issues of the day are fine, but after a month or so, they can be out of date. Taking advantage of the technology, it made sense to create a program podcast that would last. It's as current the day it is posted to six months or a year from now. Hope you like our series. Thanks for stopping by. Today we are joined by Mike O'Hara in Conversations With. Mike is the longtime beat writer for the Detroit Lions. When I say long time, I mean long time. He started with the Detroit News in 1966 and became the Lions beat writer in 1977. And he hasn't stopped since. His excellent work is available on DetroitLions.com. When you talk about perspective or a witness of history regarding this Lions franchise, Mike is the guy. Why haven't they won a Super Bowl? Who's the best he's seen? Who wasn't so good? Who was underrated and who was overrated? Who was his favorite coach? That and more in my conversation with Mike O'Hara. I don't really know how to start this with you, Mike, because... There's so many things to ask you, so many questions about the Detroit Lions since you've been covering them. So I thought I'm going to do like a word association quiz and we can go for a half hour, 45 minutes with it. But let's start. You started with the Detroit News back in 1966. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. And just by luck, Brandy, was, I was going from my junior season, junior year at Wayne State to my senior year. And my parents left me instead of the other way around. They'd retired and were moving back to South Dakota. And as much as I love South Dakota, I just it wasn't for me. You know, I I like Detroit. I've been there since I was five or six years old, and I needed a full time job. Uh, when I say I was on the Wayne State basketball team, let me just phrase it this way: If we had fourteen guys on the team, I was fifteen. If we had twelve, by I'm dead serious, by attrition, that I was number thirteen. But I went to practice every day, and Joel Mason didn't cut you if you went to practice. And, you know, like your association with Bo Schembechler, Coach Mason probably was one of the most important men in my life. I really, I learned life lessons oh, far beyond playing basketball. Being part of so, a team, you learn yeah, lessons. Absolutely. That's that's all part of the whole uh, aspect of, I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, organized sports, organized athletics. Well, yeah, I mean the bus rides, the practice sessions, sitting in the locker room, and all that. Look, everybody, knew, I knew, I knew my place. Play defense, crack jokes, stay out of the way, let the players play. <laughs> but uh, there was a guy on our team named uh, Steve Christian, and he was a copy boy at the Detroit News in the sports department. And it was one of those deals where he had a couple of brothers who also did copy boys, and there was one that just. That's, you know, one started working there, then another, and another. And those were great jobs back then. And so I ran into him in the gym the last day of class. Just happened to run into him. And I'd kind of put off talking to him. And I explained what the deal I said, look, I need a job. Could you just put a good word in for me? Maybe I can get an interview. Well, I got the interview. I got hired. And it was a great job. I learned more in, in, in three weeks as a copy boy than I did in three years in journalism class. And that's no knock on the instructors. It's just the way it is. There's nothing like no. hands-on, hands-on teaching. Same thing and with then me. A year, yeah, a year later, I got hired as a reporter. And then the next year, 1968, lo and behold, I'm 22 years old, and I'm at the World Series in St. Louis. Just how things happen, okay? It, no, that's, I had a, that's a great— 
way to, to start a career. And the thing is, maybe it happened by accident, but you know what, Mike, you were there and yeah, you were able yeah. to do what they wanted you to do. And you, you parlayed that into a tremendous career. Well, I, I was, a lot of it was, was just luck and or good fortune and all of that. And then I had a two year break with pay compliments of the United States army from 69 to 71. Uh, got hired back in 71, which was not by choice, and that was the, the law then. They had to hire you back, not necessarily at your same job, but I went right back to sports writing, and here I am all these years later still at it. Uh, left the Detroit News with a, a buyout in 2008. Kind of knocked around a little bit, worked for Fox Sports Detroit, uh, kept stringing for Sports Illustrated and some other people, and uh, and uh, now I'm at DetroitLions.com. Still trying to find, still trying to get better. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's the reason you're still doing it, and that's the reason you're still very good. Uh, in 1977, they gave you the Lions beat. First of all, did you always want to be the sports guy, or were you a news guy? Well, I was, you know, sports news, but I liked sports. You know, I was a you know a maniac growing up. I played everything except football. Uh, you know, hockey, baseball, whatever was in. Look, it's different. It's different now than it was then. Back in my day, and I lived in the east side of Detroit. Look, I haven't lived outside the city limits of Detroit since I was six years old, either in Detroit, Hamtramck, or Highland Park. And and at three thirty, when we got out of school, we were out in the street throwing the baseball, playing strikeout, things like that, playing games called running bases. In the fall, we were throwing the football. In the spring, you know, we weren't throwing the baseball. We were playing basketball. In the winter, we iced up the streets and played hockey. You don't see kids do that anymore. No, you not don't. Not in my neighborhood. No, you don't. And it, and it was, I just had a passion for sports. I was never really any good at any of them. I could really throw a baseball, but I wasn't going to be a, you know, I wasn't going to be a, a varsity player. I was pretty good. You know, I could shoot a basketball. I was pretty, you know, better than the average human being, but not better than the average basketball player. But the, the thing with the Lions, the beat came open. It wasn't, wouldn't have been my first choice. I kind of got passed over for the baseball job uh, for some political reasons. Which was okay, you know. I made my choices, and then the Detroit News decided they didn't like those in their baseball writer. And in those days, Brandy, you might remember the baseball writer was one of the most powerful men oh. on on the on the on on the newspaper. Oh, yeah, he Michael, really was. They were one of the most uh, important and powerful people in media because Absolutely, they controlled yeah. who got into the Detroit Tigers press box, the Absolutely, Baseball Writers yeah. Association. I I remember I when I first came into town as a broadcaster working for Channel 4, I had to apply to them to get right. a pre- credential to get into the Tiger press box. No, absolutely. I remember Frank Saunders was the uh, sports columnist for the Michigan Chronicle, you know, an African-American uh, newspaper published in Detroit on a weekly basis, still going strong all these years. But they didn't credential, uh, they didn't credential uh, weekly publications. It had to be daily. Can you imagine how bad that looked? And you know what? They were so pig-headed. In those days, they just couldn't see what it made them look like to oh. not give Frank Saunders. I, I would, a pig-headed, you're very kind. I'd call it arrogant and arrogant, very snobbish. Yeah. There was a guy, I think his name was Jeff Mortimer, worked for the Ann Arbor News, Ann Arbor, I think it was the Ann Arbor News. He had long hair. They tried to borrow him because he wouldn't get a haircut. Just uh, To this day, I just I, I think about some of those people there. Uh, a couple of them are still still working. And I think, <laughs> what's the matter with you people, you know? Yeah. But that's got nothing to do with me. I ended up covering the Detroit Lions. And, and just one thing, uh, in addition to doing that, I still kept my other beats like bass, like, you know, I'd cover uh, you, boxing. Yeah, yeah, and you did Pistons too, didn't you? 
Yeah, I did some of the hours. Bill Hall's number two. There you go. I, I love I, my favorite sports, Bill Basketball. I also covered some Michigan basketball. Uh, second man on you know, Michigan football sometimes, like the 10-10 tie with Ohio State. Right. Uh, <laughs> I still remember, Brandy. We're waiting at the, at the at the studio at WWJ. Right across, across the, the street, street from, from the Detroit News, I know. And Bo shows up with, I think maybe you or I forget who else he was with that. Then maybe, no, it was, it was, Don it was Cr- the athletic director, Don Kramer. Don Kramer and Don Canham. And, 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 uh, and Bill Halls, you know, one of my best friends ever in the business, walked up to Bo and said, Bo, what do you think about not going to the Rose Bowl? That's the first they'd heard of it. I know. The athletic directors had, had voted to send Ohio State to this day, it still mystifies me. And that is how Bo found out. And you talk about Mount St. Schembeck. <laughs> well, they called, they made the decision when Bo was on the road between Ann Arbor, his home, and yep. Channel 4 to tape Michigan Replay on Saturday night. Yep. And Bill found out about it before Bo did. Right. And uh, Canham and Don Kramer and the rest of them, and they blindsided him at the door of the studio. And you're well, right. I mean, Bo, yeah, Bill was doing his job. Oh, yeah, know, no, it wasn't, it wasn't Bill's yeah. fault. Bill, I'm sure Bill was as surprised as anybody that Bo didn't know. Right, it was, and you talk about, you talk about, uh, we're up all night calling athletic directors to find out who, who voted for him and who voted against. And I think it was the athletic director at Michigan State at the time. It who, was. Bert uh, Smith. Bert Smith, a former Michigan man, I think. That's correct. And it's just, it, it was a stink beyond belief. Now, and I'll be respected to the, to the Blues and U of M. It made for two weeks a great writing. <laughs> it was <laughs> a great a story. Yeah, it was a great story for a couple of weeks. But in 77, yeah. you got the Lions beat. and. Yep. And did you realize at the time, and, and I, people ask me this question when I took over radio back in 87, yeah. uh, that I was going to be as frustrated as I was for all those years and not getting to a Super Bowl. Did you have any thoughts and ideas that at one point you'd have this team to a championship game? Well, I, you know, I never really focused on it much because my job, you know, I focused on my job and I've always said this, they have their problems and I have mine. I don't. Uh, I don't. I don't really root for the jersey. I like the guys to do well that I cover. Uh, even the guys, you know, the, I never held a grudge against any player. Some guys I like more than others. You know, some guys I really like. And others, and there's a whole bunch of it that you really, honestly, you barely know. They come and go, and even among their teammates, you know, they barely know each other. Sometimes on opposite sides of the ball. But I just find that you know, to, to me, it's exciting today. It'll be exciting tomorrow. I like covering the games, and the result is what it is. Uh, but if you would have told me that they're not going to make it in 40 years, I'd have said you got to be kidding. Yeah. So they had some really good teams. I don't think people realize how good the team, the Lions of the 1990s, uh, really were from 1991 to 1999. Made the playoffs six times, and and if they would have had a quarterback, and Wayne Francis said this, if they had Matthew Stafford, they might have won two or three Super Bowls. I think that's I don't right. know about two or three, but but. It, to this day, it amazes me some of the criticism Matthew Stafford gets here in Detroit. Oh. When you go out around the National Football League and talk to players and coaches, my God, you get an entirely different perspective. But I don't understand the, that either. Well, some of that's based on who has the rights and who had the rights. To be perfectly honest about that. That's true. That's true. But the thing about – I talked to Lomas Brown about this, and Lomas said right. the same thing. He said, the one thing we lacked – was the trigger man. Now he wouldn't go into specifics, 
but you know, the idea was that Scott Mitchell was in there during that primary where they could have been yep. there, and he wasn't the guy. But there were other guys along the road that also had that opportunity that couldn't get it done. Well, you know, we, we, we look back at Eric Kramer, and, you know, look, I'd love Eric Kramer for what he accomplished. He was the starting quarterback on at the end of the season on two division winners, 1991 when he took over uh, halfway through game eight uh, when, when Rodney Pete uh, uh, tore his Achilles and missed the rest of the season and guided them to a, you know the, the win over Dallas in the playoffs. And again, in the last four games of the 1993 season, they went three and one and won the old NFC Central again. But if you really look at his record, it was just okay, you know. And it was it was better than what Rodney did, better than what Andre Ware did, better than what, than what Bob Galliano did. But if you really just match it up, and I, you know, the reason I could say that is I I was going through some of this stuff just a couple of weeks ago. I, every once in a while, I just sit around, I look at stats and compare things and all uh, that. Just I'm not sure I even remember it all, but it's just something that kind of catches, you know, I do it with all the sports, not just football. And he would be like, like there were 28 teams, and he'd be like the 18th best quarterback or something like that. But with this team, you know, he did he did give them a lift, and he did give them a knack. Uh, uh, he did have a knack of, of making some plays, but certainly not the guy who was going to take it a distance. No, but he got the one win in a playoff game, yep. and I think that yep. makes the change completely where Eric kind of moves himself up just for that oh, one absolutely. win over Dallas. They had that one win over Dallas, 38-6, to six, you know, 300 and some yards and three touchdowns. But he was thrown to a pretty good cast, too. You yeah, know, Herman was. Moore was just coming up and Brett Perriman. Look, I can make a case that Herman Moore is the best wide receiver in franchise history. Of 50. Uh, I know Calvin Johnson and all the things he's, he's done, but, you know, everything Herman did led to winning. Calvin, not so much. And it's not all his fault, but Herman was a big time player with big time catches. I think we sometimes undervalue him. And, and then, big, of course, number and, twenty. Well, number twenty. He was he was special and big time numbers too. What people don't realize is you look at the numbers you were talking about going over stats. You look yep. at Herman's numbers; they're very impressive in an well, era in an era where there was the Jerry Rices and John Stallworths and that stuff. I'll give you a call. I'll give you just some stats real quick on Herman. You know, first now he was a sixth, first round draft pick. In 1991, a lot of people don't realize this, but he was a all-conference uh, high jumper for Virginia. To this day, still holds the indoor record at seven two, I think it is, and the outdoor record at seven four. And he did that without practicing; he just could show up for the conference meet to get points. He was a tremendous athlete with great hands, best pair of hands I've ever seen on any receiver in Detroit. And and um, but he was just a big time player. He had. He was the first quarterback in history to have three straight 100-catch seasons yeah. from 1994 to 95 to 97. I'm sorry. He set the one-season record of 123 catches in 1995. Uh, that same year, he and Brett Perriman combined for 231 catches, still the all-time record of two teammates in the same season and also the most yards. He is as is, is close to Hall of Fame as you can get. The only issue was he didn't do it long enough. Yeah. Hurt his knee and, 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 and really had eight good seasons. That's not enough to make the Hall of Fame. You're right. That point about those teams in the 90s for the Detroit Lions is really, really good. About They, they could have they very easily gotten over the hump, but just missing that one key ingredient, and they were na- un- unable to do it. Let's move on. Let's, let me get to this. 
I want to get to this fun little word association, name association okay, let's thing. Do it. Because you you've all the names I've thrown, I was sitting here preparing for this and I'm going over the names. And the one guy I wanted to talk to right to the top, William Clay Ford catches a lot of heat. Everybody says this team would be better if he sold it, if the Forge got rid of it. And I, I always tell people, I said, this guy gave that franchise and those players every possible opportunity with facilities and everything else. And and maybe if he was had a problem, it was that he was loyal to a fault. But he gave them – he shouldn't be the guy that takes the heat, should he? No, I, well, because he, he's the owner, and that, 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 part, of, that part goes with it. But yeah, he was you, – you're correct about that. I think he was – Loyal to a fault, uh, he had pretty good results with with Wayne Fonts and the team. Those players loved playing for him, but there were other seasons. I think, for example, hiring Daryl Rogers was a mistake, and I think he went with him two years too long. Uh, you know, hiring Matt Millen, I got it at the time. People asked me if I thought it would work, and the only thing I said was, "And look, I love Matt Millen. I consider him a personal friend, and he's a wonderful guy." one of the best and smart, you know, the only thing that hasn't worked out 100% in his life is being the general manager of the Detroit Lions. But I, what I said then, and I still believe this, if you think it's going to work, then you're betting on faith because he's never done it. Look at John Lynch in San, San Francisco. <clears throat> not getting quite the same heat that, that, that Matt got, but he'll get it if they don't win this year. But sure he will. I think that was, that, was his, that, was, that was his biggest fault, and he was too patient. Now his predecessor, and when I say predecessor, his wife, Martha Ford is not as patient as Mr. Ford. I mean, nobody is, but she, uh, she'll she pull the trigger quickly on things if she doesn't like the way they're going. And she proved that halfway through her second or third season when she fired the president, Tom Lawan, the general manager, Martin Mayhew, and, and she's on top of everything that goes on in the yep. business. And, and, and I'm just out there, and I've said this before, and people think I'm crazy, but if you're Bob Quinn and you're Matt Patricia – you better get things done because Mrs. Ford is not going to hang around and wait for you to get things done. She wants action now. No, she she wants results. She doesn't want speeches. Uh, I I think I, I really think that she thinks she has a good tandem here, a good GM coach tandem, and I don't disagree with that. I just you know sometimes you get blinded by things by being there every day and you don't see everything. But I just don't see everything clearly. I should say, but but I think it's the right combo. But it's got to be proven on the field, and we'll see. Yeah, I agree with you. The results are so key. Okay, name association again. General manager that uh, with Russ, uh, with rather with William Clay Ford, Russ Thomas was a lightning rod. And uh, you, of course, were right there with Russ when he was yep. running the show. I thought Russ's greatest fault was uh, he, he, he ran the Detroit Lions as a business and he ran the team as a business. And he wanted... He liked the power of being general manager. He wanted to dictate to his coaches. Uh, that's the reason that, that Joe Schmidt, who was really a good head coach, yep. had that team on the way, wanted to make a trade to pick up some defensive help. Russ wouldn't let him. Uh, Joe Schmidt uh, finally finally resigned when he's still a young man, still had the vitality to do the job, but he just did not get along with Russ. I think Russ's biggest problem is that, what I just said, he, he – he meddled in what the head coach's job was, and I think he liked to win in negotiations too much, player negotiations. Right. He took it as a contest. I don't think he had necessarily the overall best interests of the, of the, of the ultimate results for the franchise in mind. He, he liked winning, 
I'll give Chuck uh, Schmidt, who replaced him, credit yeah. for that. He changed the pay structure that Russ never would do. In other words, Russ never believed in making the quarterback the highest paid player. Every other team in the league, it's just the way it is, Russ. You know, that's, that's the way it goes. He would get into these protracted battles over quarterback with his quarterbacks and his key players on contract negotiations when he could just look at it and say, Russ, what are you doing? And the successor to Russ, Chuck Schmidt, kind of stayed out of football, got the negotiation stuff going, stayed yep. out of football, and that's when they kind of got close to being really successful, didn't they? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like that, like that run. And look, they let's. There's a uh, another man out there just recently passed away, Ron Hughes. Yes, who was uh, he? Never had the title of general manager. I think they call him executive vice president in charge of personnel. He and he has succeeded Joe Bashowski, who kind of got it started when you know drafting Lomas Brown and Kevin Glover and Jerry Ball and and, and Benny Blades and Chris Spielman. And I think Barry Sanders was, those were his, his, his 1989 was his last draft. But, but Ron Hughes was a brilliant personnel man. Uh, he often said, though, the one thing he failed at, he never got him a quarterback, but he got him everything else. The 1995 Detroit Lions, and I've looked this up and I've repeated it many times, had 12 drafted draft picks on that roster who were, in some point in their career, multiple pro bowl players for the Detroit Lions, 12 draft picks. That's what, that's 25% of your roster that were people that, that they had drafted and developed to become pro bowl players. That tells you what, what the kind of a job and what kind of players uh, Ron Hughes handed those, those coaches, but they never got over the hump because of the quarterback. Right. To the hump. To the hump. Not over it. Yeah. Talk about that, coaches. I I went through this, and again, preparing for you, and I was going through the names that you and I both saw. Yep. Daryl Rogers, Wayne Funtz, Dick Geron, Gary Moeller, Bobby Ross, Marty Morningweg, Steve Mariucci, uh, Rod Marinelli, Jim Schwartz, Jim Caldwell, and now Matt Patricia. That's uh, I, I, It's amazing to me that there are that many coaches that come through when you look at a New England, and they got lightning in a bottle in Bill Belichick when they hired him, but... Has that been one of the problems? The Lions can't keep the consistency. Well, it's part of it, you know. If you don't, if you don't win, you fire the coach, and and you, and and, and you, you, that's how you don't have consistency. I started with Tommy Hudspeth, who, had, when they had fired Rick Forzano four games into the 1976 season, they pulled uh, Tommy Hudspeth out of the personnel department and made him the head coach, and he lasted that season and one more. And I really liked Tommy. He was a class act all the way. He'd been a head coach right. of Brigham Young. Right. He really, he didn't and, have the horses. And then, honestly. and then Monty, really Monty Clark came in and, and almost got them again almost. over the hump. The, the, who could forget the iconic picture of him yep. holding his hands in prayer as Eddie Murray lined up a field goal attempt in San Francisco. Forty-three yard, yeah, in San Francisco in the divisional round game. But you know, I thought Monty was on his way to becoming a good head coach. Had a terrific staff, you know, assistant coaches or Floyd Peters and uh, uh, Marty Schottenheimer was, I think, it was his his, his uh, second team he coached for. Uh-huh. I mean, just really, really good, really good coaches. Uh, but he just, I thought, Monty, we got a little bit tight, a little bit uh, overreactive to certain things, and and but it, like the others, he never had a quarterback. I mean, you talk, think about it. Gary Danielson, okay, you know, career backup, basically. He started a lot of games. Eric Kippel gave him a big lift in 1981 when after Danielson went out and right. Eric came on. And 
you know, really was kind of a swashbuckler. I think he played the last uh, 10 games, I think it was. Remember the big Monday night game he had against the Bears? Absolutely. Four touchdown passes and ran for two more. Remember that he, and he really energized that team and that fan base. And I remember they were playing a game late in the season and some fan, and they, were, they had a chance to make the playoffs, and some fan put up on a bed sheet a big sign that said, thank you, Mrs. Hippo. <laughs> but it wasn't anything that was sustainable. They just they just didn't have the quarterback, and and then it just kind of all fell apart at once on Marty. And of all other guys you mentioned, yeah, yeah. Of all those guys, Mike, was Wayne your favorite? And and who would you say was the biggest mistake? Well, Wayne was my favorite. You know, he was everybody's favorite. I I, I really like Monty Clark a lot too. I, he was a professional football coach, and I like Bobby Ross. Just I think he was. Uh, you know what? They got him. Five years too late. He was just, he, he was he was running out of gas when he got there, and just didn't have quite the relationship with with the players succeeding uh, 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 succeeding Wayne. But yeah. the, the biggest mistakes I think were Marty Morningweg. You know they were going to remake the team, and he's not a head coach. Uh, Daryl Rogers. I mean, I think it's, to me it's a three way tie. It's Daryl Rogers. Uh, it's it's uh, Marty Morningweg, and then it's what they thought. They were seeing in, in uh, Steve Mariucci, who really terrific guy, wonderful person, but he looked to me like he, he like he'd gotten his golden parachute. Yeah, when he landed in Detroit, he just put no energy into it. And I he, think he was the, the, other the guy, biggest flop they've ever had. Yeah, well, the other guy too is like, Rod Marinelli <laughs> came in like he's like a, 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 a morning wagon away, a great assistant who who was in a coordinator right. who can get all that stuff done, but for some reason it doesn't translate to be the head coach. Right, he coached one side of the ball, and 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 he had a certain model he wanted for his team, and he he wanted his defensive linemen light and quick and fast. By the end of his that, that 2008-016 season, they just looked, you know, they were just small and they were beaten up and they were tired. They were getting dominated week in and week out, and I thought I thought Rod was of that group. He was probably the best intention of all, but then you actually had him. Had him rolling one year, you know, six and two at the halfway point. He gave him some life, but didn't last long. And it really set the team back for two or three, four years until they got Jim Schwartz in there and, and got the team going late in the 2010 season. But he, like some of the others, just couldn't sustain anything. We talked about quarterbacks, and you said that everybody got the Lions maybe to the hump, but not over the hump because they lacked that quarterback. Again, word association quiz. I went through and looked at my two deeps over the years. I'm going to throw some names at you here. And there's a bunch okay. of them, so hold your applause till you're done. Kramer, Maybe I'll throw them back. Yeah, you should. Kramer, Pete, yeah. Craig, Ware, Mitchell, Kitna, Sean Hill, Dante Culpepper, Orlovsky, J.T. O'Sullivan, Harrington Garcia, Mike McMahon, Charlie Batch, Ty Detmer, Stony Case, Gus Ferrat, Frank Reich, Chuck Long, and Bob Galliano. Well, the best of that group, Al, uh, to me, this is indisputable. But he only played. Uh, let's see, he started seven games and he played in eight, and that would be Bob, uh, Dave Craig. Right. He took over in the second half, I think, of the of a, of a loss to Green Bay. I think the score was thirty to ten, and when he went in, when when uh, Scott Mitchell had a broken wrist or a broken thumb or something like that, played the rest of the way and got him in the playoffs. Really did. He threw fourteen touchdown passes against two interceptions. He would have won the passing title. If he'd have, you know, if he'd have played another game or so and gotten enough, gotten enough uh, uh, pass attempts, but he really, 
that was some of the best quarterbacking of you know like about a 15 or 20 year period but it was you know he was i think like in his 13th or 14th yeah. or 15th year i'd like him he, he was a veteran guy who knew how to win who knew how to you know run an offense right and the other well, the other guys to me mike they tried to pattern an offense to them and it was maybe not in their wheelhouse no and they had good players and he knew how to throw to them he really did that was 1994 when herman was just developing and and Brett and and you know, of course, Barry. My God, you know, that was that was that was 1994. Was the great Monday night matchup between him and Emmett Smith at uh, in Dallas on Monday Night Football. But yeah, Craig was just he just had it. That was his one year here in Detroit, and he moved on to two or three more teams before he finally right. before he and, finally and retired. So, here are a couple of names that, and it's the old story. Why didn't it work? Because they came in with such promise. Andre Ware, Heisman Trophy winner out of Houston. Chuck Long was another one. Harrington yeah. was another one. These guys, they were going to be the Matthew Stafford. And and none well, of them really turned out to be that. Is there a reason, do you think? Well, I'm, yeah, I think each one of them failed for a different reason. Andre Ware was inaccurate. He was never going to make it. He just he couldn't deliver the ball. Joey Harrington did not have the heart for football. And I liked him. I got along fine with him. But, you know, I was talking to him one time about somebody with a long career. He says, I'll never play that long. I thought, what are you talking about? got to love this game, man. It's supposed to drag the uniform off you. Uh, Chuck Long, a little different story. You know, he was really thrust in there with some bad teams. But he was tough and he was accurate. But it was his third year, I think. It was 1988. Went to training camp in Wisconsin. Again, you know, one of those combined workouts against the New Orleans Saints. And they only had two quarterbacks on the roster. And at the end, they were then practice with the quarterback throwing takeoffs, one after the other. Well, they only had two guys throwing, and guess what? The quarterback threw his arm out. And that I think that finished Chuck Long. It gave whatever chance he had of being maybe a, a you know a Chad Pennington type quarterback, right. a good touch thrower without the big arm. I thought he could have been at that level. Um, turned out he wasn't. I once predicted that, that Joey Harrington would be an above average winning quarterback. Uh, I was wrong. He just he did not have the heart for it. He had no connection with his teammates. No, nope. I don't think they hated him. They just didn't care for him. Well, I think his attitude about not really caring about the game that much, not yep. being as you know intense about it as they were, they they didn't they didn't see him as that that leader that they could follow. And I think no, that hurt I, Joey more than anything. Well, that was part of it. And you know, I, I remember the play the game in Dallas. It was a Sunday game before a Thanksgiving Day game. Four days later, they were getting they were getting hit pretty good. They really were, and and Joey got knocked down on one play, right on the stars, as I recall. Teams back in the huddle, and not one guy went over to help him up. And finally, the referee walked over, held out his hand, and helped him get up. And I looked at it, and yeah. I mentioned that to. Uh, in fact, Monty Clark was doing uh, part-time personnel for the Lions. And I says, Monty, I just can't believe it. And you know what Monty said? He said, yeah, I saw that too. That to speaks me, that volumes, that, yeah. Yeah, so to me that was, whatever we're talking about here, no, this this, this guy's not going to make it in Detroit. No. He doesn't have the guys on his side. Of the great ones, uh, obviously the number 20, Barry Sanders. Yep. And you also saw another number 20, Billy Sims, Billy uh, play Sims, football yeah. at, at, at running back. Th- those two clearly had shoulders above the rest in Detroit history. Might have been they might have been the two best uh, football players I covered the Detroit Lions in different ways. You know, both Heisman Trophy winners, 
Uh, Billy was, you know, 6'1", 220, something like 215, absolutely fearless. He'd come flying around. He was, he was a little tougher than Barry and a better downfield receiver than Barry. Barry did, for as good as he was, Barry just, he really didn't have a knack for, for the receiving game. It wasn't something I don't think he really liked it all that much. He'd take those outlet passes, but he couldn't run routes. I'm not saying he had bad hands, and I'm not saying he wasn't a smart player, because he really was. He, Barry was super smart. But Billy just was, you know, had a little bit bigger knack, better, better knack for receiving. And then he was holy heck, and he loved to put on a show too with a, you know, with a goose step into the end zone. And remember, Brandy, I remember they were playing a, a Monday night game, big game. I think it was the 1983 season when they won the division title. They started out three and five and then really caught fire late in the year. Yep. And the Monday night game, and he, they introduced him last. And remember the Silverdome Hollywood Rock? with those 80,000 fans, and Barry came, I'm sorry, Billy came jogging out through the tunnel, and that little lion mascot was running next to him, and Billy turned and looked and looked him right in the eye, and they both started goose-stepping all the way down the field. The crowd went bananas. Oh, he was a showman. He, he was. You never saw that with Barry, but look, he put on a great show, too, but that was Billy. He loved the moment. He loved the spotlight. And he produced it. If he hadn't gotten hurt, he'd be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. There's no, no question. Doubt. There's no question. No doubt about it. Uh, because he could run, and he was strong. And I mean, he would run through people. He'd run over people. Barry, I told people, Barry might not win a straight-line sprint against a lot of people, but you put him in a phone booth, and there were a couple guys in the league that were all pro that couldn't touch him. No, couldn't touch him. You know, there's, uh, he was so, you know, you see those highlights. Every time I, like, we post those on Twitter, every time I retweet one, I take the rest of the day off. My work is done. You know, everybody yeah. loves to watch those. But there's that great one against the Buffalo Bills where his helmet almost touches the ground and he spins and spins and spins and two, three, four, then five guys miss him. Yeah. That play is a two-yard loss. Okay. And it's a highlight. Okay? Uh, he got a first down against Miami once when the game was in the, uh, was in the balance. I thought it was yeah. one of his greatest runs that he made. The, the, the Lions needed a first down to salt the game away. It was like a four-point yeah. game. And he bounced off three or four different guys, cut back one way, cut back the other way, gained two yards, first down, game over. And I looked at Mark Champion at the time, and I said, that might be one of his better runs of his career. Well, that, you know, and there was an overtime game against the Giants, like a third and eight, and he caught it. He got hit like at the line of scrimmage. He got hit again. And bingo out to the you know, how, game nine and a half yards or whatever it was. We could do this all day. How about how about in Chicago, Soldier Field? He gets hit and he stopped. It's over. the The Bears quit running because yeah. he was tackled, and he pops out the other end and goes the distance. Yeah. Remember that one? Oh my God! Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Remember they kicked off to him once too. They kicked off to him once, and he ran ran it back for about fifty. They kicked off again, and he ran it back for about sixty. And it was one of the columnists of the Detroit News sitting next to me. could have been Joe Falls or Jerry Greer. And he just said, Bears don't care about winning. <laughs> Why would you get to them? Let's go to defense a little bit. Who, sure. who do you remember defensively over the 40 years? I mean, the name Spielman come to mind. Uh, you know, I remember no, Stephen Spielman, Boyd, yeah. Uh, yeah. Danny Owens, uh, you know, Robert Porsche. Some of these guys, you know, the Silver Rush, Bubba Baker. What, where do you where do you come down on the defensive side over the forty years that you've been covering these Lions and the names that stand well, out? Well, seventy seven, of course, was the last season for two of the all time greats, the late Charlie Sanders. That was his last year. He got hurt and only played a handful of games. Tried to come back in seventy eight, and I think he retired before reporting to training camp, something like that. And that was Lem Barney's last year, and and. Wasn't his best year. It wasn't his worst. But he still had that sizzle. 
But 78, I'll give you a guy. And to this day, James Albert London Baker. Bubba Baker. Oh, yes. Second second round draft pick from uh, Colorado State. If they would go back and, and, and I don't know why they can't do this. All this money they put into 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 uh, uh, the gate and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They could put half of those half of that ten million dollars into into researching the records. Bubba Baker might be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, he had over a over a seventy eight, seventy nine, eighty, and eighty one before sacks were uh, an official statistic. I think he had seventy sacks already. Oh, he was, that's not Hall of Fame football. He was unblockable. He really was. He was. This is just me. The, of the players I've seen with my own two eyes, Bubba Baker was the best pass rusher. Now, I didn't see, you know, Deacon Jones and some of the other guys before my time. From what I've seen, I've never, never seen an defensive lineman better pass rusher than Bubba. The only the guy, guys, the only yeah. guy I think I saw that was better that could dominate physically and dominate with quickness and all the tools was was Lawrence Taylor, and he was an outside Lawrence backer. Taylor. You right, know. and you know, and, and of course Reggie White. I mean, Reggie look, White, I'm not, but he could play know, down I mean, inside too. Reggie White could yeah. play down inside. Absolutely, he beat Bruce the Lions in one. Green Bay by going down over uh, Sean oh, Bowens. Yeah. That remember that game? Yeah, he, he. You know, that tells you what stats mean. He dominated that game on the first play of the game. He shoved Bowens into the quarterback, and Bowens, the quarterback, and Barry all landed on the ground at the same time. Yep. Uh, but but then moving along, I mean, Benny Blades and, and, and Chris Spielman. And Jerry Ball all came in together within a year of each other. Uh, Porsche in 1992 to add to that team with the, you know, the 91 team. It's just uh, so many terrific players. This, look, there's a young man on that roster right now who I think is special, and that's Darius Slayer, cornerback. I mean, he's been a back-to-back Pro Bowl player. And when you do it one year, okay. you know, Or if you do it in your 10th year, okay. It's sort of a ceremonial thing. But right in, right in mid-career for Darius Slay. That's a special football player that it really is. Yeah, he's uh, going to go down as one of the better cornerbacks. I mean, you know, it's it's still early, but you know, Lombardi, Night Train Lane, those kind of names. Uh, Barry Slay. Oh, could, Joe Schmidt too. Yeah. Joe in my, Schmidt. In my mind, in my mind, I, I I think Barry Sanders is the best player in franchise history. Yep. But I think Joe is the greatest lion. You know, well, on the Mount, he won. Mike on the Mount Rushmore, Joe and Barry are there. Yeah, Joe Barry, Bobby Lane, and then you pick your fourth. You know, whoever you want. I don't care. But uh, but but Joe also because he became a head coach and he really restored that that franchise in his tenure as head coach. That's why I give him the edge over everybody else. Now somebody wants to say Barry, I'm not gonna you know tear my hair out. Right. I love Barry Sanders. I really do. Okay, let's move to the professional side of things. And this is one of those inside stories. Uh, you guys covered the Lions with Oakland Press, Detroit Free Press, Detroit News. You were the older of the three guys. And you used to have this great, uh, set of, uh, standards. It was the Dean, the vice Dean and dizzy Dean. <laughs> and you were the Dean because you were there longest. Kurt Sylvester was the vice Dean and, and, uh, killer Kowalski was yeah, dizzy, Tom dean. Kowalski, dizzy Dean. And we lost uh, Tom a few years ago, but, uh, yeah. talk to me about that relationship. You guys were so competitive and yet, you you were the best of buddies too. I, I loved that relationship with the three writers from those three newspapers. Well, yeah, we were the best of buddies. We competed like you can't believe. I mean, much you know, nothing against the guys. Now it's a different era, but we never collaborated. I I wouldn't tell if the sun was out. I wouldn't tell them the sun was out. I had my you know, I'd take my sunglasses off. 
Now, Kurt was about three years older than I was and came came on the beat one year later, and I think Tom came on in 1981. So, But, yeah, we were, geez, you know, what, 20 years together, 25 years together on the beat. They went to each other's weddings, and, and you know, I drove to Iowa for Kurt's mother's funeral. I pulled, I'll never forget this, Brandy. I was debating on whether to do it, you know, and I thought, yeah, what the heck. So I pull up, and I pull up into the into – the, uh, church parking lot and see Kurt with that old white head looking up and I walk up and he looks at me and I go, Kurt, if you think I'm going to let you sit here and blubber and make a fool of yourself without <laughs> me here, you're crazy. <laughs> and his kids all start laughing and all that, but irreverent, yeah, but a close relationship and, and friends to this and, day. And but the, the competition was great. And to me, Mike, really was. and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it made all of you better. To be friends yep. and to compete like you did writing about the Detroit Lions. There wasn't any coverage in the country. I mean this. I'm, I've been around and covered the NFL a lot of years. I, I, New York, you can name it. I don't think anybody had three more qualified guys who did more work to get to the bottom line than you three covering one franchise, the Detroit Lions. Well, I appreciate that, but there was nothing like walking into that room the next day at 11 o'clock when you've beaten everybody. And there was also nothing like walking in there uh, the next day when you've gotten your butt skinned by somebody else too. And you know, Tom was a little. Tom liked to talk his story. You know, no he really kidding. did. It's, he liked to talk about it. And one time he said something. He that he was dead serious about when you beat him. When, you know, I beat him on a straight. He goes, "You never say anything." You know, I looked at him <laughs> and I didn't say a word. I didn't say. Well, I'll give you one example. This is how competitive it was. I don't know if you if you remember the weary words from the softball league out of the rotunda yeah. the diamonds out there. Well, Tom and I played on the same team. Kurt played for the free press and I was at practice. It was, a, I think we played on Monday. We played on Monday and I was in training camp and near the, I was down there by myself and Eric Hipple took a center snap and you could see it right on the thumb. Watch a lot of football. It's a broken thumb season's over. And so they take him off and it's getting to be like five o'clock and it's about an hour drive out there. Tom and Kurt both came down and said, are you ready to go? And I said, Hey, look, let me just finish something real quick and I'll be out there. I'll meet you out there. (laughs) 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 Okay. Uh, Now this is before the internet, Brandy. This is before Twitter. Uh Front page of the Detroit news, hip allowed for the season. There's a tap story. With your byline, right? Oh, yeah. I saw those guys the next day, and there's nothing they could say. Absolutely nothing. Now, it was, you know, and I told Bill Keenest, I says, I'm Bill, I'm going to tell you something. And it was his first year of the PR, head of the PR department. I told him what's going on. I says, Bill, I'm the only one here. I own, I own this story. He agreed, okay? He, and so the next day, it was it was quiet. I mean, quiet. And then, you know, a week or two later, it became kind of a joke among us of what, you know, what a sneaky thief I was. But that's <laughs> the way it was in those days, Brandy. And that's why you guys were as good as you were. Michael, I can't well, thank you enough for you. this. Uh, this has been great. appreciate you joining me on Conversations With. Well, the pleasure is mine, and I'm going to celebrate this by doing my lawn work now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Michael. All right, Brandy. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I could go on for hours with Mike. His value as a Lions historian is unmatched for all of us who live and die with this team and are hoping that someday we see them in a Super Bowl. Mike O'Hara is right there with us. Only he has more stories about the franchise than you and I combined. 
Keep an eye on my Twitter account, at Jim Brandstatter, my Facebook page, Jim Brandstatter 76 and thebrandyshow.com for more information on upcoming episodes of Conversations With.